Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. We are very pleased to have as our guest on this episode of our podcast, Dr. Olafemi Vaughn, who is the Alfred Sargent and Mary Ames Lee Professor of Black Studies and African Studies at Amherst College, and really one of the world's most foremost experts on African history and um, Nigerian history. And you have a new book, which we're going to be discussing today, Religion and the Making of Nigeria. Uh, Professor Vaughn, uh, welcome to Race and Democracy. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to be here. Uh, Professor Joseph, um, thanks very much for inviting me and for having me. Um, if I can just say one or two things very quickly, um, it, it felt really strange when I referred to you as Professor Joseph. Of course, you are Professor Joseph. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll just say Neil. Uh, Neil is a very dear friend and brother of now going on 26 years, thereabout. Uh, I'm just so honored to be here, and I'm humbled. Even to more, be here. maybe you're yeah. almost thirty years. About thirty years. <laughs> well, I'm aging myself, um, so it, it's a pleasure to to be here. I'm really humbled to have been your student on anything having to do with race, democracy, Africana studies over the past twenty five years or so. Once upon a time. Uh, you were on the other side. I remember meeting at Stony Brook University in my African and African diaspora thought class where you were an undergraduate student, if I can say so. I am just so proud of you. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Professor Vaughn is being too kind. He's my first historian besides my, my mother uh, who taught me everything that I know and inspired me to become a professor. So it's really a treat to have him here. Um, Professor Vaughn, lots to discuss. I want to start with a question, broad-based question, because you are really one of the foremost Africanists in the country, and you've done so much on state formation and the politics of 19th and 20th and 21st century Nigeria. What sparked your interest in the study of religion and the making of Nigeria? So I should mention that um, I am not a student of religion. I'm a student of politics and history. Um, much of my research over the years are oftentimes very much like yours, if I can say so, prompted by enduring problems and crises. Oftentimes what we discuss, uh, rather in the popular media or even as scholars, quite superficially, within very limited analytical frame of reference and theoretical perspectives in the social sciences and the humanities have enduring uh, roots and foundations and origins. They tend to be quite structural. So in a way, uh, just right after 9-11, there was just so much about, about Islamicists uh, in the context of the geopolitics of the war on terror. And I think most of these questions and issues were uh, quite wrong-headed, to be perfectly honest with you. People were making all kinds of authoritative interventions without knowing exactly what they're talking about. They have no expertise whatsoever to make such claims about Muslims and Islamicists. I happen to, as you know, I was born and raised in Nigeria, in southwestern Nigeria. 
Nigeria has got a very long history of religious reconciliation, accommodation between its two world religions of Islam and Christianity, but it's also got a very long history of religious tensions and sometimes confrontations. Those tensions tend to be regional. They're very much in northern and central Nigeria. The part of Nigeria where I grew up, southwestern Nigeria, the region of the Yoruba people, is what I refer to as the crossroads of Islam and Christianity. It's one of the dominant uh, ethno-linguistic region in Africa, south of the Sahara. Christians and Muslims live together quite peacefully. No confrontations between them. So I have a particular comparative perspective to know that the kind of argument of a, of a, a clash of civilization, if I can use that type of Antontanian idea, is just really on its very basis wrong and wrongheaded. Okay, let's stop there. Um, I want you to get to the crux and the heart of the matter because I think a lot of uh, our listeners will be interested in this book because in a way it explains when we think about um, the crisis of state formation in Nigeria, but also when we think about Boko Haram, when we think about this idea of radical Islam, the idea of uh, Islam being in Nigeria as something that is um, upsetting civilization, Sharia law, uh, the, these different, I want you to get to the heart of, of what are some of the arguments that the book makes. And really, when we put this, you talk in your introduction about placing religion in the making of modern Nigeria in the long durée, mm -hmm. this long duration. What is history and historical context? How does that help us understand Boko Haram? It helps us understand um, the crisis of the Nigerian state when we think about democratic processes in the Nigerian state and when there's been authoritarian rule in the Nigerian state. Um, there's been civil war in the Nigerian state, but there's also been decolonization. And you start your book by talking about how Nigeria is, you know, the world's biggest oil producer. And we think about the wealth and the resources of Nigeria and really the intellectual capital that has flown from Nigeria into the United States, especially over the last 35, 40 years, has been truly amazing. In a way, we've become a country that's not just African-American, but that's Nigerian-American as well. Yes. So, so what I what I did in this book is was very much informed by what I'd done in a number of my previous books, particularly uh, one of my earlier books, uh, Nigerian Chiefs, um, uh, which I was published about published in two thousand, and in that particular book also I took very seriously the historicity of African structures and the kinds of practices, doctrines, ideas, and ideologies they generate. So that long historical perspective is important. So for me, it's really very important to think very carefully about structures of African societies, not so much as civil society, that we all know very well that African states, as we know it, African nation states, are really arbitrary and superficial constructs. They come out of a very unimposed colonial encounter and a very short colonial encounter for that matter. Most African states, modern states as we know them, were derived from this encounter. 
essentially at the turn of the 20th century. So for all intents and purposes, African states, their colonial origins are no more, no less than roughly about 50 years, 60 years. Colonialism itself never quite consolidated its power in much of Africa until roughly about the 1920s, 1930s. Now, the question really is, to what extent can we talk about African nation states without thinking about the structures, the old structures of these societies? These are very old societies going back many, many centuries, as we very well know. Nigeria is exceptional in this particular framing precisely because of its size. It's a country with a population today of 195 million people and well over 250 distinct ethno-linguistic groups. Now, Yoruba is the largest. Yoruba is one of the largest, one of the, one of the big three. House of Fulani Yoruba and Igbo are the three dominant ones. But even the relatively small ones have populations exceeding 20 million people. There are roughly about 40 million Yorubas in Nigeria alone. There are also Yorubas in the Republic of Benin and Togo. So my question really is, as we engage African realities, we need to take structural questions and historical questions very seriously, not as conventional historians, but histori- we need to historicize African structures of society. So that methodological question is at the, very much at the core of this book. And when, you, when we historicize them, what do we find in terms of Christianity and Islam? So, so what you talk we, about, and can you explain to us, what's mission Christianity? You talk about that. Yeah, so mission Christianity is the uh, evangelical Christian movement that came out of the late 18th century. I mean, it's a global phenomenon. What, of, what, unfortunately, what's really very interesting is in the academy, I would say that because of our somewhat anti-cleric tendencies. We really don't take these religious movements very seriously. And for Nigeria specifically, why is mission Christianity so important? Mission Christianity is so important because it's so much wedded to Atlantic politics and history in of itself. Mission Christianity is very much at the heart of the, at the British anti-slavery movement in, 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 the, in the last two decades of the 18th century. Mission Christianity in the case of Nigeria is what led to the Church Missionary Society, one of the most powerful, influential, global missionary society in the world. This is really very much the movement that that major African, Africana intellectuals such as Aquina were part of. William Wilberforce was part of. So, So in a way, in understanding the British anti-slavery, the English anti-slavery movement, right? We also have to think about this in the context of what? Of the role of mission society, mission mission Christianity, uh, claiming to be, quote, um, a civilizing mission. These are very much connected to the rise of Sierra Leone and having implications for Liberia, in the early 19th century. And you talk and, about... And, and shaping much of what became the connection between African society and Western society in the West African uh, coastal region in much of the 19th century. All these questions are essential to understand the role of colonialism at the turn of the 20th century. And you talk about CMS, and you talk about CMS 
at times inadvertently um, filling out or fulfilling the prerogatives of, of, of British colonialism, imperialism. I want to talk about that. And you also introduced this term, um, Sokoto Jihad. And what, what is that vis-a-vis the Christian missionary? Okay. So, so the Sokoto Jihad, uh, this is just really, I, in the 18th century and the early 19th century to the mid-19th century, there were waves of Islamic reformist movements in Sahelian and West Africa. The main objective of these, of these Islamic uh, reformist movement essentially is to transform society on a, on a massive scale. So these are really big state builders. They themselves are imperialists, by and large. Their main objective is to purify Islam. And there's a Sokoto. Sokoto is by far the, the Sokoto is by far the most influential of all the major five of such movements. So we're talking here about major state builders. They're having conversations that are local, but those conversations are also regional and global. They're really, they're major transaction points between the Sahel and the Maghreb. They're looking north and they're looking east. The Sokoto Caliphate came out of the Jihad of Usman Danfodio. The Jihad of Usman Danfodio is the Sokoto Jihad. This ultimately led to a major Islamic confederacy. This Islamic confederacy is what the British ultimately inherited and essentially what they built their colonial project in their indirect rule system. So to really talk about British colonialism, it's going to be very important to see the convergence between one great uh, regional movement in the Sokoto Jihad and another great global movement in Christian or Western-oriented um, Christian evangelical movement coming from coming from Atlantic West Africa. It's the convergence of those two forces ultimately that provides the structural basis for what is today's Nigeria. That's a central argument of the book. Great. And we, we have so much more I want to explore. I want you to very briefly talk about indigenous religions and the connections briefly, because I want to explore yeah. so, so much. So, so a, a question of indigeneity is always very interesting, as we all very well know. We have to ask the question, what is indigenous? What is indigenous here should not be confused for what is authentic. Islam in northern Nigeria, in the Sahel, I would argue is indigenous because it's been there for a long time. Islam is not new in the Sahel, in contemporary Mauritania, uh, Mali, Chad, northern Nigeria, southern Cameroons, all the way to northern Sudan, to the Horn of Africa, Islam is very much an essential element, an integral part of how society is made over time. So we're not talking here about a religion, but we're talking really about structures of society. So I think it's really very important to, to draw that distinction. When I, what I refer to as indigenous religion is oftentimes what people might refer to as, quote, tribal African religions. I refuse to use that term. Absolutely. In part because, I mean, these are really, these are old, rich, exciting religion uh, that have worldviews and cosmologies that explain 
explain the human existence. Okay, so right. So, so in a way, by defining those indigenous religions as tribal pagan religions, those religions are essentially um, those religions, or one might say, cosmologies and worldviews, are essentially what um, Islamic reformism. Attempted to to capture and bring under its control in the 19th century, the Sokoto Jihad, and certainly the Sokoto Jihad and the Christian missionary, mm-hmm. they all have an impact on these indigenous Absolutely. old old school so, old world religions. So the so the ped, so the the at the point of ped, uh, at the point of domination and control and abuse, it's oftentimes the so-called pagan that is what assaulted. Right. So these two world religions are very much in the business of trying to incorporate pagan religions or tribal religions, what I refer to in the book as indigenous traditional African religions. In northern Nigeria and central Nigeria, northern Nigeria and central Nigeria are vastly heterogeneous. They're heterogeneous in terms of religious beliefs. Muslims come in all ki- from all kinds of doctrines and traditions, Qadariyas, Tijaniyas, amongst others. Now, um, I want to, I with the time we have left, because I still want to talk about, which I'm going to get to now, decolonization and then the war on global terror. Now, you set up a very, very interesting and historically complicated backdrop for Nigeria and decolonization. So Nigeria is decolonized in 1960. Mm-hmm. And when we think about... In, in, or, in, the, in the 1950s. In the 1950s. And gain independence and gains in, 19, independence in October in 1960. October 1960. Considering this complex religious, uh, uh, you know, these, re- these religions that are connected to state formation and civil society and politics in Nigeria, talk to us about the Nigerian Civil War and just this idea of the Nigerian state uh, after independence, and what role does Christianity and Islam and these indigenous religions play in, you talk about the turbulent 19th century, but certainly it's a turbulent post-independence um, of, of Nigeria in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, um, until sort of, a, you know, when we think about transition to democracy, d- democratic structures into the 21st century that you talk about. So talk about that in terms of how does Christianity and Islam and religion play a role in the making of this new nation state? Oh, it's a, it's a very good, difficult question to unpack in what just about two, three, four, five minutes. I, I shall try and see what I can do. But I have to go back a bit if you don't mind, and I'll try to be brief. So the 19th century, when I refer to the 19th century as a turbulent uh, period. The 19th century was consumed in southwestern Nigeria, the region of the Yoruba people, was consumed by literally 70 years, 80 years of warfare. It's called the Yoruba Wars, with serious implication for Atlantic slavery. The connection between Brazil and Cuba is really very much a connection to, to that turbulent 19th century. So I raise this question because I think it's really very important for us to understand the regional nature of what became Nigeria. Nigeria is a very regional country. So Nigeria currently has got six geopolitical cultural zones. Um, the Now just mention a couple of those zones. So there's the Hausa Fulani Kanuri Muslim North. 
which is the region I've been talking about. I would refer to that essentially as a Sahelian region where Islam predominates. The Hausa people and Hausa city-states are by far the most pervasive in this particular region. There's the central part of Nigeria, which was incorporated by the British into the northern Nigerian protectorate. This region is a non-Muslim area. The British refer to this region, a vast region, as the region of, of, of pagans. Ultimately, because of the politics and the policies of indirect rule and the negotiation between British administrators and um, Muslim power brokers in the north, uh, Christian evangelical movements were allowed solely to proselytize in central Nigeria. So that region is now Christianized. So that's the second zone. The third zone is the southwest. That's the region of the Yoruba people. I refer to it as um, the Christian Muslim crossroads. But indigenous African religions are also very strong in the southwest. Uh, the region that produces much of Nigeria's oil, Nigeria's wealth, the Delta region, is what we refer to as the South-South, and then, of course, the Southeast, which is dominated by the Igbo people. In terms of Biafra and Nigeria, the Nigerian-Biafra war, the zone of conflict was the Southeast and the South-South. So I think it's really very important to understand that ethno-regional ethno-linguistic, ethno-religious uh, dynamics that would go back several, you know, uh, several decades before independence. So decolonization, think, yeah, decolonization. Decolonization was largely a negotiation between the dominant um, power brokers, uh, political elites, national elites in these various zones. Nigeria is exceptional in so many ways because much of the negotiations were regional negotiations, right? Not a national You cannot frame Nigeria as a national entity because of the strength of the regions and because of the size of the country, because of the heterogeneity of the country itself in terms of religion, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of language, in terms of culture, in terms of city-states. So what the British did right, right after World War II, starting in 1947, but moving on to the mid-1950s is to have these negotiations between the leaders of the major regions. Mm -hmm. That project ultimately broke down, literally, after Nigeria gained its independence. I mean, it's a very superficial, as you can imagine, project. It's just imposed. It's a constitutional negotiation between so many regions that just simply don't want to be together. <laughs> quite frankly, and have no history whatsoever of being together, at least not as a, as a united political entity. So but trying when, when to... When we think about decolonization here, from the, especially from an African-American perspective, we think about people like Namdi Azikiwe and, and these, these, these figures, and we, we do think of Nigeria as this sort of cohesive um, state. Far from it. Yeah, and it's far from, yeah, far from so, it. So yeah. I, I, I want, so, so, yeah. I want to um, mm -hmm. talk about... Uh, uh, the age of terror, because really the idea of um, um, Boko Haram, uh, the way in which Nigeria is now talked about in the news and the contemporary, I think your book is very, very important to shedding light on this. Um, the, the, the crisis of, of after 9-11 and where people look as, as sort of Nigeria as a hotbed, a seed of terror, mm -hmm. right? Um, um, and they think of it as something new. Why are these 
these folks, Boko Haram, kidnapping people? Why is there all this violence that's connected to um, um, radical Islam? I want you to discuss that. Yeah, so um, so I, I see radical Islamist militants very much as a fundamental aspect of the contradiction of the Nigerian state and society. And I think that's really the way to frame it and to put this in its appropriate historical perspective. What became Boko Haram, in fact, is not new in Nigerian politics and society in Central and mostly in Northern Nigeria and certain parts of Northern Nigeria. But this phenomenon uh, became extremely common by the late 1970s as the contradictions of the Nigerian state deepens. We also have Islamists of different ideological and doctrinaire perspectives and positions emerging out of the inner belly of northern Nigerian society. Northern Nigeria is one of the poorest regions in the world, but it's also one of the most cohesive as a result of its connection with Islam. Mm. Northern Nigeria, one can argue, is very much what the rest of the country define itself against. And Northern Nigeria will also define itself against the rest of the country in so many ways because it's really quite distinctive. Now, the deeper the contradictions of the state, that is to say, uh, uh, essentially a statism and a neo-patrimonial system that is failing the vast majority of Nigerians in a post-colonial moment, the more the tendency of um, religion in this particular instance, Islam, to assert itself in, society, in northern Nigerian Muslim society and to provide temporary answers for people's problems. So that's really one way to think about this. That response in its, rad in its most radical militant form is what I would refer to as Islamicist, radical Islamicist. And that can take different shapes. In the context of Boko Haram specifically, Boko Haram came out of the long crisis of military rule in the 1980s and 1990s. So Nigeria's current civil democratic government emerged in 1999, uh, within two, three years of that emergence. After and the, for a second, why was the country so susceptible to military rule before this emergence of democracy? Well, because of all the things I've been talking about. <laughs> you know, authoritarian regimes uh, are always going to be play a key role when you have such deep structural divisions. Were this military so, Christian so, or they were Muslim? What, this they, they, what they're were all, they? They're, 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 always, military rulers. they're always some type of an elite consensus, right? Although oftentimes the North, Northern Muslims tend to predominate. Okay. So Nigeria's political elites have a way of finding alliances and forming coalitions to govern largely because of the nature of the role of oil in Nigerian politics and society. Who controls so, this oil, Professor Vaughn? Well, the Nigerian political class. <laughs> but specifically, you've just told us about the six regions. Yeah, the, 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 the political classes of the three of the, of the major regions. So this is really what I refer to as elite consensus. So, so they grapple, they, they, they gripe against one another, they confront one another, they make allegations against one another, but in actual fact, they also have a reason to stay together. 
And this is why Nigeria is not going to divide anytime soon, precisely because oil holds Nigeria together. The revenue generated from, you know, oil, Nigeria is the a fundamental frontier state. Oil is the lifeblood of the Nigerian political class, right? So if you, if you think about it that way, the regional the ethno-regional elites that I've been, political classes I've been talking about, political as well as managerial, have a reason to keep Nigeria together one way or another, whether it's a, through military rule or civil democratic government. So democracy and governance, and I know you're very interested in democracy given all that you've done in this center. Democracy in Nigerian democratic transitions and questions of liberal constitutional constitutionalism is always going to be in, in, it's always going to be a work in progress in an environment like that. We cannot really talk about democracy and good governance without taking very seriously the structures of state society. Okay, if there's a structural imbalance between state and society, then it becomes very difficult to manage democracy and good governance. I, I want to stop there and talk about public policy because one of the things your book um, says quite uh, sharply and I think eloquently right at the end of the introduction is about all these different public policy questions when it comes to Sharia law, when it comes to democracy and um, the Constitution and conflict re resolution. Um, what are some policy implications for your deep study of religion in the making of modern um, Nigeria? So, so I am very much interested, as I stated in the book, in, in public policy, but I am not interested in superficial public policy like you. I think if we're really going to engage questions of, of um, a public policy, we also have to understand we need a distinctive interdisciplinary perspective. We need to take the subject matter very seriously. We cannot do, in my view, public policy just simply by using one analytical perspective or tool or methods. So my work is very, very much, I hope, distinctively interdisciplinary and taking the subject very seriously. What drives my thinking about actionable public policy is not just simply to find simple answers, but rather to raise very difficult questions. And from those difficult questions, perhaps we can now begin to think of, of meaningful enduring public policy. So with specific reference to the politics of Sharia, which is so central to Nigeria, I ask a couple of questions. And can you tell us what Sharia law is, what Sharia so, is? So Sharia, Sharia in, in the Nigerian context, it's very, it, we, we have to define Sharia in juxtaposition to English common law. Because Nigeria is a former British colony, what predominates in the public square is British common, English common law, I should say, rather. But then also, you also have what is referred to as customary law, as opposed to, say, Islamic law. Islamic law is, Sharia is Islamic law. But Sharia operates in Nigeria at a number of levels. In large measure, because northern Nigeria is what one might refer to as the house of Muslims, because Islam is deeply embedded structurally in northern Nigerian society, it would be virtually impossible not to have some version of limited um, Islamic law in northern Nigeria. Mm -hmm. uh, I am not an advocate of even this limited um, uh, application of Sharia, but I'm a realist. 
So under the British, the British negotiated with the leaders of northern Nigeria, House of Fulani and Kanuri Muslims, to limit Sharia to personal law, matters pertaining to inheritance, marriages, and so on. Even at that level, Sharia is still, in my view, extremely negative towards women and girls. But now what has happened in Nigeria is the Nigerian crisis deepened in a post-colonial moment, starting in the 19. 19- 70s, every single time you have a constitutional negotiation of national meaning in Nigeria, Islamicists of different ideological persuasions, clerics, even very well-educated modernists will make the question of Sharia a central question. Now, what they're calling for is to advocate for Sharia to have implications for civil and criminal matters. In other words, to have two distinctive types of law in one country. One, under English common law, and the second one, under what I would say, unrestricted Sharia. No doubt Sharia will govern virtually everything. You cannot have one country with two fundamentally different laws. With the time we have left, how, how, would, you, how would you tackle that? How would you tackle that? Well, uh, the, the solution to such a problem is not a, in my view, is not a constitutional solution. It's a political solution. Strengthen the state. <laughs> yeah. How do you Str- do that? Strengthen the agencies, the instrumentalities, the moral authority, the, the legitimacy of the state. And you will not have people clamoring for expanded Sharia and restricted Islamic law. Mm-hmm. Weaken the state, erode the instrumentalities, legitimacy, and moral authorities of the modern state, the post-colonial state, then you will have people as clamoring for expanded Sharia, unrestricted Sharia, predicated in the failure of the modern state. Every single time the state fails the masses of ordinary people in northern Nigeria, the default solution is to coalesce behind a, a Sharia movement. So, so b- b- the question I have for you is a structural, the answer I have for you is a, is a structural answer. How you do that, uh, I wish I know how to do that, right? Uh, the, as, but how, what I can say is not so much how you do it, but rather what is required, right? What is required is to understand fundamentally the importance of the strength of the nation state and building civil society. If you have institutions that work, educational institutions, um, if you have basic health care for people, if you have if you have economic systems that are productive, if you have uh, schooling for young women, for girls, um, then the state and civil society is able to largely um, define the character of society. When you have an erosion of the instrumentalities of the state, when the state lacks moral authority and legitimation, something Something else, oftentimes something quite negative, even something quite sinister will feel that gap left behind, the gap vacated by the instruments of the state. So this is really about the moral authority and the legitimacy of the state. It's about the ways in which you have to connect 
structures of society to states to, to, to state systems. When you have a major incongruity between the two, when you have a, a major structural imbalance between state institutions and structures of society, society will find a way to fill that gap. Islamization in northern and central Nigeria, particularly northern Nigeria, is oftentimes the answer. Extreme form of Islamist militancy and insurgency playing itself out in the request for total and complete Sharia. Now what steps in as a strategy of collective political and social mobilization? Most of the time, it ends up in what? In disaster very quickly. So the argument here is that this is largely a default solution to a very, very deep problem. Uh, it's perceived to be a solution, but in fact, it is not a solution. Northern Nigeria doesn't have a long history of expanded Sharia, but Sharia provides a wonderful mechanism and medium and strategy to, to uh, mobilize the vast masses of ordinary, impoverished Northern Nigerian houses they're called Talakawa. Religion can be so appealing in this particular context, can serve as a very powerful mobilizing force. Uh, it is not a solution, but it's a very limited response to a deep crisis of the state. The deeper the crisis of the state, the more you will have Islamicists making claims on, on Nigerian society and Nigerian state. My final question Religion in the making of Nigeria, why should the West be so interested in this? Why should students of not just Africa, and I, I know why, but I want you to tell us in terms of students of policy, students of law and society, history students who are interested in America, not necessarily interested in the entire world, why should they be interested in religion in the making of modern Nigeria? Or, or religion in the making of any other post-colonial nation state, for that matter, Pakistan, India, uh, Somalia, uh, Sudan. Uh, these questions are very important questions. The Arabian Peninsula, these issues. Well, they have to be. I mean, for the reasons that I got interested. I mean, I'm, as I said earlier, I'm a student of history and politics, not a student of religion. Religion matters a great deal. Most of the people that we teach, most of the people we talk to, most of the people that we study in our research and scholarship are profoundly religious and spiritual people. They just believe whether we like it or not in, in spirit beings, in ways in which we in the academy tend not to. I think it's reasonable to say that Western-oriented intellectuals and academics are very much anti-cleric. They're anti-cleric, and I don't mean that as a pejorative or negative and they're anti-cleric without even knowing they're anti-cleric. They just simply don't engage questions pertaining to religion. They oftentimes leave issues pertaining to religion to relatively small religious studies departments. We don't study religion in sociology and political science and history in ways in which we ought to in anthropology as a fundamental aspect of state and society making. Uh, if most of the people we study and most of the societies we study are profoundly religious, 
then I think it's incumbent on us to now begin to take religion very seriously. African-Americans, for example, are profoundly religious people, for example. But we, even in Africana studies, if I can be a bit self-critical here and reflective, we don't do enough in, in, in Africana intellectual tradition, in black studies, to take religion very seriously. So I think, I think precisely because we need to imagine the aspirations of local people and we need to meet them where they are, where they live, where they reproduce themselves. Can you imagine not studying charismatic Pentecostalism in the global south, in countries like Brazil, Nigeria? This is not just simply a religious phenomenon as a movement. It's a so- social phenomenon of mind-boggling proportion. And in a political my, one, too. In my view, the most important in the global age, in the age of globalization. But we're not doing enough to engage these kinds of questions. Why is charismatic Pentecostalism and revival-oriented Christianity gaining grounds? Why Why are Islamicists of different kinds, Salafi movements, Sufi movements, Qadiriya, Tijaniya, Gaining grounds in a in a transnational. Why are they helping us to understand or to reflect on the ways in which the local and the global intersect as a dialectical process? The ways in which the national, the transnational, regional and transregional, tradition and modernity intersect. These questions are by their very nature the cover of wide variety of fields in the humanistic, social sciences, and the arts. So for me precisely because of their place in the age of neoliberal globalism. Religion is arguably the most important force shaping real societies. We need to now switch our attention as Africanist intellectuals and scholars and students to that particular subject. We need to do this in the context of African studies, African-American studies, Africa diaspora studies. This is what I attempted to do in my own small way in this book. (laughs) Very well said. Thank you, Professor Olufemi Vaughan, Alfred Sargent and Mary Ames Lee, Professor of Black Studies and African Studies. His brand new book, Religion and the Making of Nigeria, uh, this is a wonderful book and, and really a path-breaking, groundbreaking um, addition to the literature on religion and Africa, but really a singular contribution uh, in terms of religion and the making of, of modern Nigeria. Uh, thank you for... Thank, thanks very much, Professor Joseph, for having me. It's been a pleasure being with you. And uh, I should also mention, if you, I, I just have to, to say this, Uh, I am incredibly proud of you. I've been your student now for the past 25 years, been learning from you um, on all things Africana studies. You've been my teacher in so many ways. It's always very interesting when you have the shift. When once upon a time, one of your most imaginative, uh, engaging, I remember um, that course on... African, black African, politics, black yeah. politics, yeah, African, century, yeah. Yeah. Uh, essentially African and African intellectual tradition, and how you bring in these big books. You've read all of them, even then, and how you questioned me and queried me, and really encouraged me to to reflect on my own assertions and lectures and so on. And and I I have to say that it's been one of my my most wonderful lives 
experience, quite frankly. It's been a joy and a delight being your friend and brother over these wonderful 26 odd years. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. You're being too kind. Yeah, for the past, yeah, almost 30, 30, almost 30, 30 years. years. Yeah, yeah Professor years. Vaughn has thank been you. my mentor. So I'm, I'm very, very Thanks, excited man. to have him uh, today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.